KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a part of me as we start the show today that wishes I could say, stop, stop with this extraordinary flow of news stories that are breaking in politics in Georgia. Uh, But uh, we have so much to talk about on the show today and a great panel to break it all down. So I want to get right uh, to them all, Um, starting with Greg Bluestein, who's my partner on the Wednesday edition of Political Rewind. You know him well as a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Greg, I want to take a moment to congratulate you. You are in Syracuse as you do the show today, uh, because last night you and um, Dave Wickert, a colleague of yours, were there at um, Syracuse University to accept a very prestigious award, the Toner Prize for Outstanding uh, Political Reporting Uh, for a local news organization, and um, it was for a remarkable series of stories inside the campaign to undermine George's election. So congratulations to you, Greg. Thanks. We were were ambassadors for a broader group that includes Tia, that includes other members of the AJC team, photographers, producers, editors, web designers, all sorts of folks who got involved. Um, and it was really a cool moment because, uh, you know, we, we, we talked with some very engaged students who asked a zillion questions about how we put the project together. And we have even more later today <laughs> on, on that. One of the judges, uh, Marilee Schwartz, said this about the series, quote, superior work, the epic narrative and the embedded explanatory sidebars created a powerful portrait of the shocking events in Georgia and Washington as Trump obsessively pressured to undermine the election results in the state. Uh, so, Tia and uh, Greg, congratulations. And, and Charles Bullock, University of Georgia professor of political science, who also joins us. We, we said before the show, uh, this prize we know is named for Robin Toner, who was an outstanding political reporter, first at the Atlantic Constitution, and then went on to be the first female national political correspondent for the New York Times. And Chuck, you and I knew Robin, and uh, so it's always heartening uh, to hear about this prize again, isn't it? Certainly is, right. And she died far too young. (laughs) She was a tremendous reporter. I always enjoyed speaking with her. Yes, and this prize was named in her honor after, as you point out, she did die uh, far too young. So, um, all right, I wanted to make clear that we are excited for all of you at the AJC for uh, this uh, prize. Uh, Tia Mitchell is here joining us from Washington, where, of course, she's the Washington reporter for the AJC. Tia, pretty busy up on your beat with yesterday's uh, GOP conference uh, election to nominate their speaker choice, Kevin McCarthy. And today, the Senate could see a feud develop between Rick Scott and Mitch McConnell over who's going to lead them uh, in the next session. Yeah, it's been a busy week with leadership elections, new member orientation. We have reps Collins, well, reps elect Collins and McCormick. And then on top of that, the Senate, as you mentioned, is taking a pretty consequential vote on protecting same-sex marriage. Um, Hmm. So much going on in Washington. We'll get to some of that during the show today. Rick Dent is back with us. Rick has been our guiding light when it comes to political advertising throughout the midterm election. And uh, Rick, you're continuing to do that because we cannot get out of this election cycle. The runoff election is still a few weeks away. Yeah, we we were just saying before the show, uh, once that runoff is over, you won't talk to me for another two years. So it'll be a win-win for both of us. I think that our listeners are going to hope that you will continue to come back and be part of our our show. All right, Greg, let's start with the news out of Judge Robert McBurney's uh, court. It's a blockbuster story. Um, McBurney ruled yesterday that Georgia's heartbeat uh, abortion law is unconstitutional 
And he ruled that way on the grounds that the law was signed um, while Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land. And as a result of that, he said it's unconstitutional. And here's a quote from McBurney's, McBurney's ruling. This ruling is merely a reinforcement of what ought to be for everyone the un- uncontroversial notion that if the judicial branch has declared a constitutional right, legislatures exceed their authority, improperly expand their role, and fundamentally alter the balance struck by the separation of powers when they enact laws they know to be plainly and facially unconstitutional. He says those laws are void upon passage because Roe wasn't overturned until well after Georgia, uh, 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 the governor, signed that law into effect. Greg? Yeah, and basically he it's not an invitation, but he opened the door for lawmakers to come back and try to reinstitute uh, these uh, these restrictions. Uh, But that's a giant question now for Governor Kemp, who now has a mandate after a not a landslide victory, as Charles Bullock will say, but a close to landslide victory over Stacey Abrams um, and Republicans who retain control of the legislature, but with a narrow margin. And first, we have to see what an appeals court does, right? Um, that's mm-hmm. the first big question. And we're not sure how quickly uh, this case will wind its way through the court system. But if this ruling is upheld, then Republicans have a giant headache and a giant decision on their hands. They have to decide whether or not to push the same limits through that passed very narrowly in 2019, even with a, a broader Republican majority in the Georgia House and Georgia Senate, still passed by just one vote in the Georgia House. There are dozens, more than a dozen new lawmakers, dozens of new lawmakers, I should say, um, in the chamber since 2019. And you've got new leaders. Uh, Governor Kemp is the only man left standing in, in, the, in the top of the echelon. Uh, you've got an incoming Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, and you've got a new House Speaker. So uh, it's really unclear what, what decisions they would make, what, what path they would, they would try to strike uh, if the appeals court upholds this ruling. Chuck Bullock, uh, Attorney General Chris Carr, newly elected to a second term in that office, has already said he will appeal, as Greg Bluestein points out. It'll eventually end up in the hands of the Georgia State Supreme Court. Uh, And as Greg says, though, Chuck, we don't know how quickly the court may want to take this up, how it could overlap with a legislative session starting in January. There are a lot of unanswered questions, Chuck. There really are. I was trying to remember. Uh, My recollection is that this is not the law that uh, Brian Kemp wanted back in 2019. Mm-hmm. What I can't remember is whether his proposal was one of those trigger laws that were passed in a number of states. And those laws said, you know, here's what will happen if Roe v. Wade gets overturned. But Georgia didn't adopt that. Now, had that piece of legislation had been written that, that way, then there would not be a problem because <laughs> it was not going to take effect until after something happened in the Supreme Court. So you know, probably had the better idea, perhaps, and then things kind of got away from him, as I recall, and got away from the speaker that they did not want to go as far as this law. And so, you know, they they had the better idea. Uh, and again, had, they, had their views prevailed, then we would not be in the situation we find ourselves this morning. Tia, the um, state's abortion providers, um, we've already heard from some of them, and they are, of course, celebrating the fact that they believe they'll be able to start providing services again. But at least the ones that have been quoted by a number of news organizations are a little nervous about just how to proceed um, because they're not quite sure uh, how quickly an appeal may go forward, how quickly a court may rule. So it looks like we're going to see legal abortion again in the state, but how it um, develops is still up in the air. Right. And we have to remember, like, you can't just ramp up and ramp down easily. You know, we're talking about personnel, equipment, resources, and they had been operating under a new normal that really limited the abortions they could perform to extremely early term. Um, Now it could go back to the status quo. In theory, it would open up these clinics to begin performing abortions. Um, you know, for later term people, more regular kind of the way people find out when they're pregnant later on in pregnancy, sometimes after missing, you know, a cycle or two. Um, But it can't happen overnight. And so then they have to make the business decision. Is it worth ramping back up 
with the uncertainty of an appeal and having no timeline for when, you know, new rulings could come down and restrict them right back again. You know, Rick, it strikes me. Well, first, we should say that this case was argued for two days in McBurney's court well before uh, the November 8th election. Uh, but he made it fairly clear that he wasn't going to issue a ruling until after the election was over with. But this ruling does remind us that elections have consequences. For those people who believe that abortion should be illegal, the uh, consequence of this election, Governor Kemp being reelected, Chris Carr being reelected, um, means that they could, in fact, they are going to appeal and will hope that they uh, win their appeal to reinstate abortion uh, abortion restrictions in the state. On the other hand, for those who are pro-choice, not having Stacey Abrams or Jen Jordan in office makes an enormous difference in this moment. Well, well it does, but but what you just offered is a proof point. Voters considered that, and they went with the Republicans all the way down the line. And that tells me— that this election was not about abortion. It may have played a part in the way some people voted, but clearly, as James Carville used to say, it's the economy stupid. Um, we were, I know the Democrats had pinned their hopes on the abortion issue, as they should have. That was not a mistake. A lot of people said, well, that's a mistake. You should have focused on the economy. The abortion issue was the only hope they had, if truth be known. They were never going to win on the economic issue. Abortion opened up the ability maybe to keep those suburban women intact in for them, and it simply didn't work. It was a strategy that they needed to do, um, but unfortunately it didn't work for them. Greg, I've been trying to puzzle out how this ruling by McBurney may play out in the Senate runoff election. And maybe you have a better sense of that than I do as to whether it does play uh, much of a role there. I'm not sure if it does, and we, we have to see. You know, we, we haven't heard much from either candidates. Frankly, you know, even the, even the decision over the weekend um, that clinched the Senate control for Democrats hasn't really played it. It's certainly played into the race, but not on the campaign trail. It hasn't changed the messaging um, for, uh, for, for either of these, these, these candidates. So I'll, I'll be watching very closely as well to see if this injects any sort of, sort of volatility into the debate. It would have played a bigger role in the governor's race for sure, uh, but in the Senate race where, you know, this is a state issue, I'm not sure that it, that it does. I, I, will add this, I will add this, Bill. There is one ad that the Democrats are, are running right now that attacks Walker on paying for an abortion, but it's framed as a character and trust issue and not as an abortion issue. So I think Greg's right. It, it's probably not going to play much of a role in that Senate race, other than as they're trying to use it right now, it's character and trust-based. Uh, okay, well, obviously there is a lot that is uh, going to be unpacked as a result of this ruling right now. Tia, we should add that in his ruling, although McBurney said that the heartbeat aspect of the law is unconstitutional, uh, he allowed to stand the uh, portion of the law which essentially uh, treats a fetus as a person. That, he said, uh, remains legal. He did make some changes in the reporting uh, uh, that uh, uh, abortion providers are supposed to make uh, to the state. So we're going to watch how all of this plays out, Tia. Yeah, I mean, the personhood issue has not received the same amount of attention as the abortion issue for obvious reasons. It's a lot, it's harder to understand because quite frankly, lawmakers haven't even figured out what the implications of this will be. Um, But to me, this is the one that is wider reaching. We know it might not be the intention of our state top state officials, the speaker, Governor Kemp, but we know there are conservative organizations that want to go further and use personhood language to limit contraception, limit fertility, um, and things like that. And that's like to be determined where it could go. Maybe, maybe not this year, but it's coming. 
Chuck, before I move on, I really do want to offer you an opportunity to comment on all of this. Uh, You've been watching politics in this state uh, for decades now. And so I'm wondering how you think this all may play out in the legislative session, um, what you uh, think about any part of uh, uh, any role this could play in the Senate runoff election. Just give us your final thoughts on this. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking it might have a role in the Senate race in that it might have some impact on turnout. Now, we know there are going to be fewer people who go to the polls in three weeks or over the next three weeks than we had uh, last week. Uh, and, you know, we've got a shorter period of time. There's only one issue on the ballot. Uh, and something like this maybe then uh, prompts a, a critical constituency would be white uh, college-educated voters, particularly white college-educated women, to say, well, yeah, that reminds me of that you know, this is, is an issue, and yeah, it's something which is being decided here in Georgia. It's not going to be decided in the, the U.S. Senate, but often voters aren't quite sure where decisions are going to get made, and it's a, it's a political decision, and so they may want to say, yeah, I want to make sure I go and vote and kind of squeeze my vote in during that one week we're going to have or, or show up on Election Day. So with a reduced electorate overall, you know, the, the share of voters who might be mobilized by this could potentially prove decisive. All right. Um, let's move on uh, from uh, McBurney and the impact of his ruling to talk about another event that happened yesterday that also may have an impact here in Georgia. Donald Trump, despite urgings by many Republican leaders, including some who are in his own circle, not to announce that he's running again for president at this moment, went ahead, of course, and in a, in a speech that uh, Trump Trump's team said told reporters who were at Mar-a-Lago for this last night that this was a 35-minute speech. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, apparently, Trump talked for 65 minutes, yeah. uh, rambled on and on, went off script. Uh, it, it, but, Greg, you said that one of the things that you had to do after the Toner Prize uh, event was to uh, watch the speech. Just give us your general thoughts about what you saw unfold. You know, we, we hunkered down in a bar in downtown Syracuse with some, with some of our friends from the Washington Post and just watched the entire speech, or at least the part that Fox News, until Fox News uh, uh, cut Donald Trump off, pulled him off screen. Um, you know, it was rambling. It wasn't as um, cutting, it wasn't like his traditional rallies, right? He did not, he did not lean into the stop the steal stuff as much as we've heard him at rallies in Georgia and, and beyond. He didn't lay into some of the invective he usually does, but it doesn't mean he didn't riddle his speech with lies and falsehoods and conspiracy theories and all that. Um, he's talked a lot more about we, at least at first, than he did about I, which I thought was really unique. And of course, he gave a shout out to Herschel Walker. Um, and a nod not only to his ally, but also to the criticism that he's faced for, for launching this campaign in the middle of the runoff, that even though it doesn't control the fate of the U.S. Senate anymore, it still is so consequential to both parties, this, this 51st seat for Democrats or 50th seat for Republicans. And so he gave Herschel Walker a little nod just saying voters should, should back him because he, quote, deserves the seat. Um, let me ask each of you uh, to comment on uh this announcement coming after what was a clearly dismal general election for Donald Trump. You know, in the speech last night, of course, he talked about numbers. Ninety-six percent of the people I endorsed won their elections. I, first of all, I don't know if that figure is anywhere close to true, but to whatever extent it's true, it certainly isn't about the general election. It may be <laughs> that his far-right election denier candidates won primary campaigns, uh, but then he positioned them to lose in the uh, general election. And, and let me just point out a couple facts and then ask you each to weigh in. Uh, Chuck, uh, Trump, according to the Cook Report, uh, there were five competitive, the five most competitive house races that Trump weighed in on. He lost all five. Um, He also, of course, um, endorsed candidates for secretary of state in in various states or others who uh, oversee elections. Every election denier who sought to become that top election official in a battleground state uh, was defeated. And and we know that defeats go on from there, probably uh, the most uh, uh, high-profile one being uh, the the, uh, call the other night that Carrie Lake, uh, Trump, Trump's basically uh, 
uh, imitator in Arizona lost the governor's race. So, uh, so at, given all of that, Chuck, what kind of moment was this for him to announce? Well, the tides were running against him, and also we hear this drumbeat promoting Ron DeSantis down in Florida. Um, I was wondering if part of his motivation here might be, and again, Rick would been some, involved in so many campaigns, could address this better than I, but a feeling that you know, he needs to get out there and stake his, his claim uh, to hold the support of individuals who have been behind him so that they don't begin to say, well, I think I'll get behind DeSantis or one of the other uh, aspiring people who would like to run for the presidency. So he says, yeah, I'm running, so if you've been with me in the past, I hope you'll stick with me. Uh, and of course, what we also see him doing is he deflects any kind of responsibility for this. That is, you know, he's blaming it on, on Senator McConnell or anybody else. And, you know, he, he's never blame, blameworthy for any things which go bad. Rick, yeah. uh, you're welcome to wait. Oh, go ahead. Tia, do you want to jump in? I just wanted to jump in on the endorsement thing because I think it's so interesting. Like, look in Georgia, the in the primaries that counted, most of Trump's endorsed people did not win. Herschel Walker did, Burt Jones did, but, you know, David Perdue lost, Vernon Jones lost, um, Jake Evans lost. Um, did, cause did Jake Evans eventually get the Trump endorsement? Jo- jo- um, Jody Heiss lost. Yes. Jody Heiss lost. So, but what Trump did was he then later endorsed Mike Collins and Rich McCormick after they won the primary over the Trump endorsed person. So now he gets to count them as like the people I endorsed won. You know, he endorsed all the incumbents who had no serious competition, you know, like your Buddy Carters and your your um, Rick Allen. So it's like he was able to run up the score by either endorsing people who didn't have competitive races or endorsing people after they beat the person he endorsed the first time. And Greg, it still looks point, like... Oh, I just said to add to his point, he also endorsed Governor Kemp the election eve. He just he, It was part of a long list of, of candidates that he just literally listed their names of, with gauzy music playing in the background. And, you know, so, I, so he could technically say that he endorsed Governor Kemp, even though, even though it was kind of... Uh, buried in a, in a long, long list of other folks he was endorsing. Rick, jump in. Well, you know, a, a couple of things. Kind of going to sound like a trumper for a second. Don't, under, don't underestimate this candidate. When we talk about his weakness, what we're really talking about is his general election weakness. He's not going to be a great general election candidate. But remember, primaries are decided by pluralities, not runoffs. And in a multi-candidate race, I would argue that Donald Trump probably has the largest plurality going in. And if you look at the, uh, those primaries that way, he's still going to be a force to deal with. I'm not saying he's going to win the nomination, but that core support of his is not going to abandon him, I don't think. Yeah, I, I think, I'm glad you made that point. Chuck? Yeah, uh, we could see a replay of what happened in 2016. Now, it helps him the greater the number of candidates who get into this. But when right. Trump was running the table in early 2016, he was not getting majorities. He doesn't get a majority until the New York primary, which comes along in April. So by that point, he's pretty much got it wrapped up. So if there are a lot of candidates running against him, they split the opposition vote, and he ends up being able to claim he wins in this state, that state, and whatever. Um, I want to turn to Herschel Walker, who got the shout-out from Trump last night. But before I do, Rick, let me come back to you. I, 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 I think it was Brett Stevens, the conservative columnist for the New York Times, an anti-Trumper for a long time now, who made an interesting point today. A lot of people are pointing to Ron DeSantis as the obvious a candidate to take on Trump. Brett Stevens points out that Ron DeSantis is still a pretty young guy. Uh, why would he want to get into the mud with Donald Trump understanding exactly how Trump runs campaigns against uh, people who oppose him? Uh, wouldn't he be um, much smarter to wait things out for another four years? Now, of course, who knows whether Brett Stevens' point is something that's being thought about in Florida right now, 
Uh, but you do have to wonder how many people, aside from Mike Pence, Rick, really do want to get into that kind of really, really horrific campaign mode against Donald Trump. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just look at the landfill that is filled with uh, Republican candidates that he just chewed through. I mean, he's not going to just beat you. We know what he's going to do to you. He, so DeSantis is young, maybe sit back and maybe be, be on the ticket. Um, but I, I, I don't know if I would want to go against that buzzsaw. All right. Um, Herschel Walker did come up last night, Greg Bluestein. Uh, let's listen to the shout out he got from Donald Trump. Despite the outcome in the Senate, we cannot lose hope. And we must all work very hard for a gentleman and a great person named Herschel Walker, a fabulous human being who loves our country and will be a great United States Senator. Herschel Walker, get out and vote for Herschel, and he deserves it. Greg, uh, what do you think? Help or hurt Herschel Walker? Well, I, my gut says hurt because this is a time where Republicans here in Georgia want to make this a referendum on Joe Biden, just like they try to make the, the November phase a referendum on Joe Biden. And it distracts attention from that. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, it adds Donald Trump to the mix. It became an instant fundraising tool for Democrats. Tia pointed that out on the Twitter thread last night. There's a number of Democrats who said instead of paying attention to Donald Trump, just know <laughs> you should vote. You should donate to her to Raphael Warnock's Senate campaign. But at the same time, it holds some unpredictability for, for Democrats, too. There is a reason why Democrats didn't try to make 2020 a lot about Trump. They try to make it more about themselves because, uh, you know, the, Stacey Abrams in 2020, she wasn't on the ballot, but she wouldn't name she wouldn't call Donald Trump by name. She said, the, the, you know, the, the man in the White House. You know, it, it, because it's uncertain terrain for even Democrats, because you don't want to rev up that MAGA base either. And Republicans had a very big turnout problem in the midterm. They, they, they far uh, underplay their expectations here in Georgia and, of course, around the country. And so it is, it is some, some very tricky terrain right now for Democrats as well, I think. That it's Tia, not you're so- muted. There you go. I um, agree with Greg. I don't think it's so much a problem with, you know, Donald Trump moving the needle as much either way. I think that a much more impactful endorsement would be Governor Kemp coming on the trail with Herschel Walker. Governor Kemp not just lending his ground game, which is behind the scenes, but if Governor Kemp really starts saying, hey, guys, you supported me. I need you to come for Herschel Walker. That, I think, would have impact, and that's what we're hearing from voters. All right, I want to keep talking about the uh, Senate runoff, but we got to get to our first break. We're already a little late for that, so let's do it, get it out of the way, and come back with this terrific panel on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Tia Mitchell, Washington reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Rick Dent, who is a political ad expert, vice president of Matrix Communications. Uh, But also, Rick, I always like to point out, you were an aide, and in some cases a key aide, to three different Southern Democratic governors, including uh, Zell Miller, uh, during his tenure as governor of the state. So we always love hearing your point of view. Chuck Bullock is with us. I consider him the dean of political science professors in the South, uh, not only due to his insights and knowledge, but his long tenure uh, looking at politics in Georgia. And Greg Bluestein, who shows up for us no matter where he is. He's in Syracuse today, and we're glad to have you back, Greg. All right, let's talk about uh, Brian Kemp. Is Brian Kemp going to jump in? 
for uh, Herschel Walker. Greg, what's your latest intelligence about that? I I won't be surprised if he does, and if he does, um, you know, sometime in the next couple of weeks. There's only a couple of weeks left, but to hold a campaign rally with him. Mm-hmm. Look, Governor Kemp has said publicly several times now that he's going to do whatever it takes to help Herschel Walker. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that a Herschel Walker defeat, if he ends up getting defeated and Brian Kemp's not helping, he'll get part of the blame, right? And it would really take the sheen off of this, this big victory that he has over Stacey Abrams. And two, it's just, you know, it's a matter of party politics, but he, he'll have a lot easier time with the Republican senator as a Republican governor than he would as with two Democratic senators. Um, you know, he, he has a, a good working relationship with both the Democrats right now in the Senate. But of course, he's a Republican, a very conservative Republican, and he'd rather have a GOP senator. But at the same time, you know, you can't discount the fact that these two men have not had a very cozy relationship. They've not been on the campaign trail at the same event, stumping for each other yet. And even way back in May, when I asked Herschel Walker, who he's voting for, he wouldn't say whether he was backing Governor Kemp or uh, David Perdue, his then primary challenger. So th- there is there is some frostiness between them that has existed throughout the entire campaign up until the night before the election, where they were holding two separate rallies two miles from each other, and neither attended uh, the, the other's rally. Rick, putting your political consultant hat on for a moment, uh, if you're Herschel Walker's campaign manager... Do you uh, welcome a visit from Donald Trump, or do you ask him to keep his distance? <laughs> well, you know, that was the big question <laughs> you remember this summer. What, what will Trump do? And surprisingly, Trump had the discipline not to say anything and not to do anything. <laughs> Particularly, he did not come to the state of Georgia. We know now from uh, looking at election returns, Walker's weakness was in the Atlanta suburbs, and it was among primarily, as Chuck points out, college-educated white women. Um, Warnock did very well with white voters compared to Stacey Abrams, and if Trump comes into this state for Herschel Walker, it will crush Walker in the suburbs, just crush him, and I don't think he can make it up uh, in the rest of the state. Chuck, what advice would you want to give the Walker campaign about Trump? <laughs> I think they ought to keep their distance from him. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you know, he does certainly so mobilizes his followers, but then, as Rick suggests, he also he does an even better job for Democrats who can run against him. And so, again, to draw upon something Rick said earlier, that is, you know, it changes the tenor of this contest from one in which the Republicans like to talk about the failings that they would say of of uh, the Biden presidency, and then makes it more of a comparison. Yeah, okay, what do you think about Biden? But what do you also think about Trump? And we know that that critical component of the electorate who didn't vote for Trump two years ago and didn't vote for the two Republican senators, and if they turn out again, they're not going to vote for uh, the Republican senator this year. All right, um, Rick, before, I'm sorry, Greg, before we move on from talking about the Senate race, and, and I want to talk about uh, money in the Senate race too, but before we move on, I, I want to talk about the tenor, the tone of this runoff election, particularly in terms of Raphael Warnock. We know that Warnock's ads throughout the, uh, the general election cycle uh, were fierce in attacking Herschel Walker, but we also know that for a good part of the campaign, uh, Warnock himself uh, was did not go on the attack. He tried to be positive and upbeat, talking about how he worked across the aisle on crucial legislation. But we now see that that's changed. And the most recent example you reported on is Raphael Warnock really went after Herschel Walker over uh, 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 Walker's claims that, and you'll uh, talk about it more specifically, Walker's claims that Warnock is not involved with his children. Tell us about Warnock's reaction to that. Yeah, look, the senator has, has tried to do this approach he calls the remain the reverend approach. There was something that in 2020 that helped guide his campaign. It's something that in 2022 helped shape his campaign. It's the sort of above the fray mentality, right? I mean, he's he, he is not your traditional fire and brimstone pastor who's who's out on the campaign trail attacking his opponents. He's 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 not taking that approach. Although that started to change, particularly when it came to Senator to Herschel Walker's assertion um, at a campaign stop earlier this week that 
that the Democrat didn't, in his words, quote, keep his own kids, you know, watch his own kids. Republicans have also been tearing at uh, Senator Warnock's uh, child custody dispute with his, his ex-wife and making assertions in press releases that he, that he hardly sees his children. And that has really upset uh, the Democrat. He called me last night while I was here in Syracuse and went on the record saying, basically, uh, and I'll quote it, he says, I want to set the record straight. My children live with me. I'm present with my children every way that a father should be, from breakfast in the morning to bedtime prayers at night. I can't continue to let him lie about our family. And it's what he says is, a, is an act of hypocrisy from Herschel Walker, who, as we've talked about on this program and in news coverage, um, had, to dis- you know, had to publicly speak about uh, three children that were, he had previously not acknowledged publicly, and, of course, is facing allegations that he uh, pressured two women into having abortions um, despite their uh, their concerns with that procedure. Um, and he's denied those, Hirsch Walker's denied those claims, but um, this to Senator Warnock is a crossing of a line that can't be uh, uncrossed, and it's really, it's, it's really uh, infuriated him. Tia, Walker's taking a, a page right out of the Trump playbook. He's been accused of abandoning his own children, and so he turns it around on his opponent. Um, it is, it's, it's, it's exactly what Donald Trump uh, likes to do when he's out there on the campaign trail. And, and Tia, I turn to you on this because you've watched Raphael Warnock in the U.S. Senate. You, you have a pretty good sense of exactly how he does try to work in a bipartisan way, and I, and I suspect you would say he has done that. Yeah, and I think I think this might be a little bit of a miscalculation on the Walker side because it works with his base. Well, and maybe that is the calculation because when we go to Herschel Walker events, what we hear from Walker supporters is they believe Raphael Warnock is just as bad as Herschel Walker when it comes to the controversies. They say, well, Herschel Walker, he might have been accused of abuse so was Raphael Warnock. Herschel Walker was accused of not taking care of his kids. So was Raphael Warnock. And they think it's equally as bad on both sides. But these are the super entrenched Warnock supporters who maybe aren't persuade Walker supporters, I'm sorry, who maybe aren't persuadable. And I get that the runoff is a turnout game. So I think maybe what Herschel Walker is trying to do is, again, gin up this both sidesism that is based on false equivalencies. It, let's put that clear. These are false equivalencies. What Herschel Walker has been accused of is larger in volume and in, you know, it's not just one incident. It's multiple and on multiple fronts on the Herschel Walker side. But that being said, again, Herschel Walker supporters, they're eating it up, and maybe that's who he's talking directly to. But I think it, it will turn off perhaps some of those voters that Herschel Walker might need. Rick, you're welcome to jump in, but I also want to add to uh, what you uh, talk about. You're reporting to us about total spending now with the runoff well underway. Democrats uh, have so far spent $150 million. That total includes the general election cycle and so far in the runoff, I think. Republicans, $121 million. So we're getting close to $300 million being spent on this runoff election. You can comment on that, but but uh, take up the uh, issue of how Walker and Warnock are arguing over their care of children. Well, what I was going to say, it's easy to say, well, Reverend Warnock is trying to be positive in his advertising, and he is. He's completely positive right now. But that's really easy to do when you have two other Democratic allies calling Walker a pathological liar and he's paying for abortions. (laughs) So I would argue 10 years ago, when it was just one campaign versus another campaign, Warnock would probably be hitting Walker silly right now. So let's don't give the Warnock campaign too much credit for being above the fray. Well, Um, let me, let me, you're, go ahead. The, The other thing I was going to point out about what we know about the the numbers, what's so great about seeing the advertising buys, not necessarily the numbers, but you can see the strategy. And what we now know is that the Senate leadership, which is the Republican PAC, which was spending $5 million a week the last four weeks of the general election, are down to about four hundred grand. 
it looks like, and it can change tomorrow, but it looks like they may be following the Stacey Abrams strategy that she used in the last three weeks of her campaign. And that is, we know McConnell is going to fund the Kemp GOTV machine. So perhaps they're going to take those resources that were on television and move them to the, to the, the Kemp uh, team. So we'll see if it worked. It did not work for Stacey Abrams. Um, I think, Rick, you make a very good point. Um, I was saying that Walker on, uh, Warnock on the stump uh, kind of plays the pastor, is the pastor that he is in life. But, of course, as I said, there have been, uh, you know, relentless attacks uh, by PAC supporting uh, of Warnock. <laughs> uh, Chuck, final word on this before we have to get to our last break. Yeah, yeah, something we haven't talked about, and that is the, how the Senate race has been transformed by what happened in Nevada and Arizona. So you no know, Democrats have got control of the Senate. So what does that do? Okay, it reduces the pressure on those conflicted Republicans who oh, in November were being pressured about, you may have problems with Herschel Walker, but you need to turn out and vote so that Republicans can control the Senate. Well, having removed that pressure, I think a couple of things happen. Is one, you don't have to go vote for Herschel Walker now if you've got serious concerns about him. And secondly, you don't even need to turn out and vote at all. So I think that uh, the Walker campaign has you know, lost a potential component it might have gotten. And the other thing it also is losing is they're not going to be any Kemp coattails. But sure, even if Kemp, no matter how much he endorses uh, this candidacy, he's not on the ballot to draw people to come and vote. And then maybe say, okay, I showed up here to vote for Brian Kemp, but once I'm here, I, I guess I can also vote for Herschel Walker. So I think that Walker campaign has been very seriously hurt by by these recent changes. Yeah, thank you for adding uh, that note about uh, control of the Senate no, no longer being at stake. Greg, real quickly, uh, the Atlanta Press Club has announced a Senate runoff debate for next Monday evening. Uh, Raphael Warnock's people will certainly show up. Is Walker likely to show up or not? Actually, we don't know if Raphael Warnock's folks are going to show up, if, if he's going to show up. He, uh, neither of the camps have confirmed. Uh, we have some ongoing meetings in the Atlanta Press Club debate committee panel, which, of which I'm a, a member of the debate committee. Um, but we have not gotten any, any confirmation at this very moment from either campaign, uh, and, and partly because we, we don't know how much debate prep time these candidates actually have with such little time left. And, you know, they, they do have to go and go into sort of uh, isolation to prepare for debates, even if, even if just one candidate's going to be on the podium, they still have to get ready for questions from panelists. So you're not sure about Warnock either at this point. Let's be clear on that. We're not sure about Warnock either. We've asked him on the record, and um, he's uh, he's basically said, hey, he's focused on the race. He hasn't made that decision yet. And uh, behind the scenes, we haven't heard from either campaign either. All right. I still got a couple issues I really want to ask this panel about, but I'm late for our final break. Let's get it out of the way and come right back with more. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. We've got just a little time left, but there's really two issues I'm hoping we can get to before we do run out of time. Tia, one of them is yesterday Kevin McCarthy uh, got the GOP conference's no uh, nomination, essentially, to be the next Speaker of the House, assuming Republicans take control, which if they haven't done it already this morning, they're on the verge of doing by a very narrow margin. But here's the reason I bring it up. Marjorie Taylor Greene has been a vociferous supporter of McCarthy for this position. And the reason I find it interesting is I think it tells us a lot about how Marjorie Taylor Greene may get a green light from Kevin McCarthy, assuming he does win the speaker's uh, seat, uh, gavel, uh, to basically continue with her outrageous <laughs> statements, conduct uh, in uh, the new house coming up in the next session. Yeah, and I think it's not just like her, she didn't have committees. So everything she did over the last two years was like, 
just her as an individual, as a member of Congress, you know, out there in the world. Under Speaker Kevin McCarthy, which is likely to happen, and yes, she has ingratiated herself with him. Quite frankly, he he owes her. He's a little bit indebted to her. And so now what is likely to happen in the new Congress is that she will be empowered to bring her antics to committees, possibly powerful committees. So it won't just be Marjorie Taylor Greene saying and doing things as a member of Congress. She could be saying and doing things that really affect how, you know, Congress does business, um, saying and doing things and using the power of the subpoena, the power of powerful committees to further her, her agenda, empowered by Speaker McCarthy. Chuck, she's played her cards right uh, in terms of her role in this one, uh, because obviously there are conservative allies of hers who do not want to see McCarthy win the speakership. They're on the verge of maybe not a full-out rebellion. We'll see when they actually elect the speaker when the session uh, begins. But uh, she's aligned with McCarthy and is probably going to get a lot out of that. Well, I expect she will. And she may... We may see in the 118th Congress, she may be essentially the Joe Manchin that we've seen in the Senate for the last two years. You know, she alone, maybe not, but she with Laura Bobbert, with uh, Matt Gates, and others, kind of all for the Freedom Caucus fringe, they can tie the you know, Republican leadership in the House in knots. And so the you know, Republican leadership is going to have to go to her and essentially say, here's what we want to do. Is this okay with you? And if not, what are your demands? And we'll try to accommodate those demands if they try to try to govern. So she is in a very powerful position going forward. All right. Um, we'll watch how that develops. I do want to move on to another issue before we run out of time. Greg Bluestein, um, uh, Raphael Warnock, and a group of voting rights activists have now filed a lawsuit uh, insisting that there be a Saturday uh, early election day uh, early voting day, which would be a week from uh, this Saturday, um, they're, they're claiming that the Secretary of State's office has misinterpreted a law that says you can't have an early voting day following a state holiday. Yeah, this is a story that our colleague at the AGC, Mark Neese, just blew wide open over the weekend um, because there have been rumblings about this. And, and even for at one of the press conferences, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger actually indicated there would be um, Saturday voting, and this is a this is a uh, unforeseen consequence to many Democrats of that state law that passed. Um, uh, well, the first version of it passed years ago, and, and then it was kind of recodified in SB 202 last year. And during the debate last year, there were so many other issues that came up uh, and problems and flaws in this law, perceived flaws in this law by Democratic critics, but this was not one of them. Uh, this was not something that was that was front and center, and now certainly it is because it could threaten, or it is threatening, uh, one of the the handful of early voting days. And look, we knew that when we shortened the runoff from nine weeks to four weeks, there'd be consequences. You can't have a three-week early voting period when the election still hasn't even certified. You know, you can't you can't you can't have those ballots out right now. So that is one of the consequences. But at the same time, Democrats say that there should still be expanded weekend opportunities for voters. Um, and that this law is sort of a, an antiquated relic. Rick, how crucial is a, a Saturday uh, early voting day for uh, Raphael Warnock? It's very important because, as we know, because we can see the data, Democrats win early voting big. Republicans win Election Day really big. So if you take a Saturday away, that's really going to hurt Democrats much more than Republicans. The other comment I want to make about this story is just the pure irony here that it's probably a well, it is a Confederate a Confederate holiday that may get get in the way of Saturday voting for Democrats. Number one, and also the great irony that the moderate Raffensperger is the one who's making this decision, who came out as the you know the anti-Trump Secretary of State. Well. You get what you pay for. <laughs> Chuck? <laughs> yeah, right. Rick, Rick is right. You know, so that if only five days, maybe six days, if we've gotten to Saturday, uh, Democrats would have to have a very good turnout then because 
we see how the whole nature of that electorate changes as we move to election day. And so Democrats need every possible day they can have, and apparently they're not going to get one of them. Okay, one very last quick uh, um, item. Uh, yesterday, we know that Brian Kemp testified uh, before the special grand jury looking into the uh, uh, efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. His testimony is sealed. We don't know what he said, but he's there for about three hours. Um, and we know that Fonnie Willis Gregg has stepped up now that the election is essentially over, except for the runoff her activity with this grand jury. Uh, today, uh, Cassidy Hutchison, who became kind of a well-known person because of her work uh, in the White House uh, on the days that uh, uh, the insur- day the insurrection took place, is supposed to be testifying. Newt Gingrich is once again trying to block his uh, uh, testimony in front of the grand jury. And um, so this thing is really ramping up in a very dramatic way at this point, Greg. It is after a midterm pause that it's firing on all cylinders now. And we're expecting, we, we could expect a recommendation of whether Fonnie Willis should, should proceed with charges against uh, Donald Trump either later this year, in the next few weeks, or early next year. So stay tuned. And we are, we, we once again say that uh, with Trump announcing for reelection, he is hoping to f- fend off the possibility of being indicted, either by the Department of Justice in their probe or here. But Chuck Bullock, very quickly, many people believe that his greatest legal jeopardy is right here in the state of Georgia. You have about 20 seconds to comment on that, Chuck. (laughs) Well, that's right, right. Because if he should be convicted here in Georgia, and if he should become president, he cannot pardon himself for whatever takes place in Georgia. He can only pardon himself for any kind of federal crimes, other state crimes. Chuck Bullock, I guess the last word on today's political rewind. Chuck, uh, Tia Mitchell, uh, Rick Dent, Greg Bluestein, thank you for a wonderful conversation on a day when there is so much political news uh, breaking. Thanks again. Uh, We'll be back again, of course, with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and go out and get a flu shot if you haven't had one, and maybe get a COVID booster while you're there as well. See you all tomorrow.